You're listening to the podcast edition of NewsHour Extra, and we're discussing this week the dreams of national independence, the dreams that can drive people to extreme acts. Some are prepared to kill for their national cause, others to be killed. Why is it such a powerful idea? How come when nationalists win, they often deny independence to other smaller groups within their new nation? Why do central governments want to hang on to all their provinces? Is it a question of economics or just colonial legacy or something else? And our panel today, we've got Margaret Macmillan, Professor of International History at Oxford University, Elizabeth O'Heaney, a Ghanaian politician and journalist who used to be, I should say, with the BBC. We've got Neil Asherson, a writer and historian of nationalism, and Dr James Irving, who actually teaches a course on self-determination at the London School of Economics. So let me start by asking you all a simple question. Margaret McMillan, you're actually speaking from Canada, so since you're in a remote studio, let's start with you. What nation do you belong to? And do you want to be more independent than you are? No, I think I belong to multiple identities, and my national identity is Canadian, and I'm also a citizen of Toronto. I'm also someone from the province of Ontario, I'm also a Scot by ancestry, and I don't think I really should have to choose among them. And what worries me about national movements is they often force a choice upon people who don't necessarily want it. They say, you're part of our unit, you have to behave in a certain way, and that I've always disliked. Neil Asherson, what nation do you belong to? I belong to the Scottish nation, but I'm a British citizen, and uh, I don't see a contradiction in that at the moment, except that I have a feeling that the British state, the United Kingdom, is coming apart. I have a feeling that that is a positive development, not a disaster, but uh, that is a subject for discussion. Dr James Irving, what's your nation? I do hate to be forced to choose these things, and I agree exactly with what Professor Macmillan said. I have multiple identities. I'm an Australian citizen, I'm a British citizen. Within Australia, I'm a Victorian, and I'm from Melbourne, and I've always felt comfortable with those things united. The question is, at certain times in history, we are asked to make a choice between two different things, and that's often where we see self-determination questions coming into play, and the question is, are those choices really necessary or are, as Neil Asherson said, they're being forced upon us? Elizabeth O'Heaney, let me ask you, what nation do you think you belong to? At the moment, I feel very much Ghanaian. Like, I feel like I'm a Ghanaian. The part of Ghana that I come from, some of them, some of us, have grievances and they think because um, the colonial borders cut our people, some of the people who belong to the tribe in which I belong to, some people call it a state, are to be found in Togo, and uh, maybe some of them even in Benin. But I feel very Ghanaian. We've got a group, an untypical group here who just happen to have a lot of international experience, you all travel a lot, you've got you know, a very broad outlook on life, but there are people who will feel they have a single identity, won't there be, Margaret Macmillan? I think that's always been the case. I mean, in the past, it was often religion or you belong to a particular clan or tribe. And I think the trouble with single identities, they're enormously powerful. I think people will devote their lives to them, but I think they can also be boxes and they can prevent you from seeing that you might have something in common with other people who might have slightly different identities. So I'm a woman. That gives me something in common with women who come from different nationalities. I, I dislike 
and I understand the appeal of it, but I, I dislike this strong single identity. Now, let's just focus on an unfolding situation. The Iraqi Kurdish referendum on independence. Now, that took place on Monday, and the result, to no one's great surprise, was a very strong, yes, we want independence, 92%. And I'm joined uh, from our Washington studio by Bayan Sami Rahman, now Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the United States. So it's a very good current example of a demand for national independence. Why do the Kurds want independence? Well, because we have had other identities imposed on us. Uh, When you look back at Kurdish history, as I'm sure you know, Kurdistan has been divided between Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria. There have been moves in each of those countries over time to deny our language, deny our culture, deny our history. In Iraq, we have suffered chemical weapons. We have suffered repeated acts of genocide, including current genocide under ISIS against the Yazidis and the Christians. So for us, we feel that everything that we represent has been denied, and it is time for us to choose our own destiny. We believe that we will have more protection internationally and domestically if we are a sovereign state. Against which you could argue that the Kurds in Iraq have had effective autonomy for many years now and you are able to live your life as you see fit with really very little effective interference from Baghdad. Um, I would dispute that. Of course, we have had autonomy effectively since 1991, and then this was formalized and recognized in the Iraqi constitution of 2005. But there have been so many violations of the Iraqi constitution, and it's this constitution that binds all of Iraq together. For example, in the constitution, it says that Kurdish and Arabic are the two official languages of Iraq. You try speaking Kurdish anywhere outside of Kurdistan. It's not like Canada. For example, where French and English are everywhere and officials are required to speak both languages. Kurdish is pretty much ignored. That's a very small example. A much more serious and perhaps fatal or lethal example is the role of the Peshmerga. The Peshmerga are Kurdistan's recognized legitimate army. They are recognized by the Kurdistan parliament as such. All of the Kurdistan parliament's laws I recognize in the Iraqi constitution. The Peshmerga are also part of Iraq's defense mechanism, yet they have never been paid out of Iraq's defense budget. They have never been trained and equipped. In fact, equipment or weapons have been denied the Peshmerga. So when ISIS attacked in 2014, they had only old Kalashnikovs to defend themselves with. When ISIS had captured the most sophisticated weapons from the Iraqi military, which fled. So this is a very current, recent example where not having sovereignty was fatal and led to thousands of deaths. I'm going to ask you two quick questions. I'm actually going to give the panel a chance to talk to you as well. But just um, two quick questions, first of all. I'm right to say, am I not, that the Kurdish leadership is not declaring independence at this point? You're sort of asserting your right to independence, as you see it, on the basis of this referendum. Yes, we are very clear that in international law, we meet the requirements for an independent state. Within the Iraqi constitution, we have the right to hold a referendum. And the constitution is clear that Iraq is a voluntary union. 
our leadership decided that rather than declare unilaterally independence, it would be wiser to take this step by step. We flagged to all of our neighbors, to the international community, to Baghdad, that we would hold a referendum and that the referendum would give the leadership the mandate to negotiate an amicable separation once the results were in. Second question. If the Yazidi leadership said, we want a referendum on independence within Kurdistan, would you grant them the right to have a vote on that and respect the result? Yes, we would. And in fact, there is a draft Kurdistan constitution. It now needs to be redrafted. But the draft Kurdistan constitution even now allows for autonomy within Kurdistan region, not even an independent state, within Kurdistan region, it allows for minorities where they make a majority to opt for autonomy. Once we are an independent state, we would redraft that and consider every option. Thank you very much for the moment. Do stay with us. Let's speak now to Maysun al-Damluji, who is in Amman and is an Iraqi member of parliament. Now then, you're really sitting in the centre of Iraq, watching the Kurds hold this referendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, the Kurds have the right, obviously, like any other people in the world, to self-determination. Nobody has has or should dispute this right. The problem is over the borders. This has not been agreed, and I don't think it will be... I don't see that it will be agreed peacefully. I hope it does. There was a referendum. There was pressure to defer the referendum, but it didn't happen. The procedure, even in Iraqi standards, even in Middle Eastern standards, is really leaves many question marks, many questions to be asked. For instance, the opposition was not allowed to the referendum. Uh, one TV station spoke publicly, not against the referendum, but to defer the referendum, and it was closed down, etc., We don't know the um, percentage of people who did not show up to the referendum. All this doesn't matter. The referendum took place. The people of Kurdistan have the right to self-determination. We have to agree on borders. Just to clarify your position, you're saying that in a way you recognise the right for... I mean, not just self-determination, but to secede and declare an independent nation as as long as you can agree on the borders. Is that it? Well, no, no, no. This is not exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that they have a right to self-determination. When the constitution was written in 2003, the rest of Iraq made many concessions to the Kurds in order to keep Iraq united. And the Kurds agreed. And there was violations, I agree with, with the previous speaker, but on all sides. Kurds, Arabs, the government in Baghdad, the government in Erbil, everybody violated the, all the sides violated the constitution. The question about language, Kurdish not being spoken in, in Baghdad, it is really because it is lack of efficiency that caused this. But a law was legislated in late 2013 that makes Kurdish an official language of Iraq. We do not have the means to to spread this all over Iraq, to have Kurdish as a second language. About the Peshmerga, the leadership of the Peshmerga does not lie within Baghdad, the Iraqi Ministry of Defense or the Commander-in-Chief or any of this. This is a political problem that could be solved. This shouldn't be a reason to separate the country. And the problem is 
creating a lack of stability in the entire region. There will be domino effect, not only on Iraq and Kurdistan. In my opinion, there will be no separation. There will be fragmentation of the entire region, including Kurdistan itself. You know, Soleimani yeah. and Kirkuk on one side and Doha. But, but so, so just to understand your position, you're saying there's a right to self-determination. Are you drawing a distinction between a right to self-determination and a right to declare independence? No, no, no. It is the same thing. I'm talking about geopolitics within the region. Kurds have internal problems, obvious internal problems. The leadership has violated its own Kurdistan constitution. Instead of trying to solve the problems internally, they're, they're parliament has been closed for the last two years for heaven's sake. The speaker of parliament is not allowed to go into Erbil for heaven's sake. Instead of trying to solve the internal problems, they created this kind of national euphoria, which is not unlike the Arab euphoria prior to 1967 by Gamal Abdel Nasser. And you know what happened. I really hope that this movement will not end up the way it ended with the Arab states in 1967. I'm now going to ask the panel to put questions to the two very different points of view from Iraq and Kurdistan. So why don't I start with you, James Irving, because you've you've studied this issue of self-determination and some people do draw a distinction between self-determination and independence. Talk us through that. And and what would you ask of uh, Maysoon al-Damluji? Well, that's a classic development, I guess, that's happened in public international law. In the context of decolonization, self-determination always offered a right to independent statehood. However, in more modern circumstances, now that decolonization has substantially come to a conclusion, you tend to find with secessionist movements that self-determination is more often expressed through, say, an autonomy arrangement rather than separation. And the reason for that is fairly common sense. You tend to have far more intermingled populations with competing claims, Absolutely. and the best way to resolve those claims is often an autonomy arrangement, not necessarily always, but often. I would then go on to just ask soon: are there any circumstances under which you would accept an independence movement by the Kurds? Well, the way the constitution was written after 2003, uh, Kurds are no longer second-class citizens the way they were prior to 2003. In terms of, uh, obviously, it wasn't in the constitution, but they they were attacked by chemical weapons. And, uh, you know, they had major, uh, really uh, horrific uh, violations and crimes uh, committed against them. Since 2003, there has been no violations. Uh, So in other words, if they're not mistreated or maltreated, then they wouldn't have a right to leave the state, which which is remedial secession. Everybody has the right. I talk here about ethical rights after writing the constitution. They, they with the Shiite blocs, wrote the the constitution. We, as secular blocs, had very little to do with the drafting or the passing of the constitution. Yet, it is these people who wrote the constitution are fighting about the clauses of the constitution that they wrote. I want to make this clear. They are not in agreement. It is not us, the people in between. Everyone has a right to self-determination. But after agreeing to keep Iraq a united uh, federal state, and and, uh, they have as you know, a quite a wide range of uh, autonomy, Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and I applaud that. I'm not against it. Uh, I think they should work with the rest of Iraqis to uh, rid ourselves of all the problems we've been facing, extremism and ISIS and ethnic and religious tensions, etc., and create a modern civic state 
for okay. everyone to live peacefully, you know, like like what we see in the rest in the civilized world, so so to speak. Margaret Ma- Ma- Merlin, do you do you have a question maybe for Bayan Sami Rahman from the from the Kurdish side? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's a question of of political will. I think about whether you can remain autonomous within a larger unit. Um, in Canada, it's taken us 150 years to get to a point where English and French are spoken across the country and, and where French speakers can feel comfortable in a majority English-speaking country. And my worry, and it's a very practical question, is if the Kurdish parts, and the borders are still to be defined, of Iraq try to declare their independence, you will find yourselves living in a very dangerous neighborhood with countries around you that will not be friendly to you. Absolutely. And I'm wondering whether you look at it, whether it would not make more sense and be safer in the long run to try and work within an Iraq to give an autonomy, the sort of autonomy, self-determination doesn't have to, I I disagree that self-determination has to lead to full independence. Self-determination can be control over those things that are important to a people such as language, such as culture, such as education, such as perhaps religion, having the capacity to go to law in your own language or be treated medically in your own language. Wouldn't it be from the point of view of the Kurds just asking a safer option to try and keep themselves within a strong Iraq. An independent Kurdistan is going to be awfully lonely in a very dangerous neighborhood. Bayan Sami Rahman. <laughs> well, we are already awfully lonely and surrounded by hostile neighbors. So we, we believe we already are in a very risky situation. And yes, uh, the referendum itself was risky. This, the move towards independence is risky. But we believe the status quo carries far more risk for us. As a non-independent uh, so, uh, autonomous region, we, as I said, cannot buy weapons for our Peshmerga. And Baghdad doesn't allow us to buy weapons direct. Everything has to go through Baghdad. And Baghdad puts a limit on the kind of weapons that our Peshmerga need. And yet the Iraqi army is not there to defend us either. Unlike Scotland, the British army is the British army and will defend any corner of the UK, even the Falkland Islands, thousands of miles away. We don't feel that in Kurdistan. When ISIS attacked, the Iraqi military disappeared. They fled from Mosul. They fled from Kirkuk. So the the Peshmerga moved into Kirkuk, mm. and now we're being accused of a land grab. Should but we I have left can, Kirkuk for ISIS to control? Can, can and I, can I would I also, just, I would also I, like to dispute what Maysoon said. She but, said it's not clear who voted no, and it's not clear who didn't vote in the referendum. I'm sorry, Maysoon, your information is not correct. The uh, Referendum co- Commission has made it clear the turnout was 72%. 72%. Okay, uh, Margaret McMillan, quick point and then we'll, just, we'll move on. Just, just a quick point, because I think I can understand why people want to talk about the past and the grievances of the past, but, but what I think is, is terribly what important... I'm talking about no, can I just... Can, no, is affecting let Margaret McMillan make her point. I, but all I'm asking is, given the circumstances... Can you see, and it sounds like you can't, a way of trying to overcome the past grievances, overcome the past problems, and build an autonomous Kurdish region within Iraq? And what you're saying is no, but I don't think going back over what happened is necessarily the most productive thing to do. But Bayan Sami Rahman, you know, this is not really a question of of principle, it's pragmatism. Is, Is this safe for you to do this? We tried that. In 2003, we had already been 
uh, semi-autonomous for uh, a decade and a half. And we had the choice in 2003 to go for independence or to be part of Iraq. We believe that Iraq would be federal, would be democratic, would be secular. And for those reasons, we joined the Voluntary Union of Iraq in 2003, and it was ratified in the Constitution of 2005. So Margaret poses a very good question. Why not try to be part of Iraq? We tried that road, and by 2017, and in fact, I would argue by 2014, we had already reached the point where we believed we didn't have a future in Iraq. Iraq is becoming more and more sectarian. It's becoming increasingly a theocracy, and it doesn't have the institutions of a federation. So that's really the point that I wanted to make, that we've tried to be part of Iraq, and instead... We have realized that we need to be independent. And yes, independence will be risky, but the status quo is even more risky for us. Okay. well, thank you very much for your contribution. And let's just uh, ask Dr. James Irving, do those kind of uh, considerations, I mean, are very much sort of practical considerations rather than legal matters. So it's sort of slightly outside your purview, is it? Well, fortunately, practice and law occasionally do come into relationship (laughs) with each other. And uh, in this case, there is certainly authority that suggests that if the state is not appropriately incorporating the reflecting the interests and the political voice of part of the state, then that may be the kind of thing which which could assist in arguments uh, supporting independence at international law. And the fall of the Yugoslavia would be the case study in that regard. And Neil Asherson, as you listen to those two speakers from Iraq, one from Iraq, one from Kurdistan, what were your thoughts? Well, my feeling was this, that uh, Kurdistan appears to be uh, the largest stateless nation in the world. Uh, But the point is uh, that the Kurdish nation or the Kurdish people is, in fact, distributed between five different countries, states, one of which happens to be Iraq. Now, the immediate question is is that we haven't been talking about the context because if, okay, if Iraqi Kurdistan, to put it that way, becomes independent, can that independence ever be complete from the point of view of Kurds without becoming, you know, attempting the reunion of a free, independent, greater Kurdistan of all Kurdish peoples? This is a question, for example, when Poland was uh, subjugated to other empires. How could it come together out of three different empires? How could it come together without disturbing the international order? Uh, And on the other hand, could Poland ever say that it was independent if it left part of its population living in another state so that the independence of a part of Poland or a part of Kurdistan can never be more than incomplete? Is that a Kurdish attitude? It, it, it does raise lots of difficult questions. The Kurdish issue always has done, mind you. Just a reminder, you're listening to a podcast edition of News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service. This week, dealing with the question of independence movements. We take a different topic each week and discuss it for an hour. And you can subscribe to that podcast. And there are many other BBC World Service podcasts you might be interested in as well. In particular, I could mention Witness our history series told by people who were there. So that's first-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped uh, shape our lives and the places we live. But uh, right now you're listening to News Hour Extra, and let's get back to our panel. Margaret Macmillan, Professor of International History at Oxford University. Elizabeth Ohini, a Ghanaian politician and journalist. The writer Neil Asherson and Dr James Irving of the London School of Economics. I'm just going to turn our attention now to Catalonia, where the 
people are being given the chance, maybe, to vote on Sunday. And here are uh, some crowds during the campaign in Catalonia singing the national anthem. Now, Madrid is saying that this uh, vote is illegal. And earlier this month, Spain's constitutional court agreed with that. The Spanish Prime Minister, Mariano Rajoy, continues to insist that the referendum won't happen. This vote, however much it is imposed in a rushed, hasty and illegal way, will not be held. There will be no referendum of self-determination because it means to deprive all Spaniards of the right to decide their future. As you will understand, neither the government nor the courts can allow this in any way. So the uh, Catalans obviously don't see it that way. Jordi Sole y Ferrando is the Catalan mayor of Caldes de Montbui. It's a town of 17,000 just north of Barcelona. He's a member of the European Parliament. And they asked him why he wants independence from Spain. Because we are convinced that by having our own independent state, we will have the best tools, the best resources and the best chances to improve our country, to build up a better society, a fairer society, a society with more chances for everyone living in in Catalonia. Uh, We are convinced that by getting our own state, we will have the best tools to have uh, a better country. So it's an economic argument. First of all, it's a matter of democracy. So uh, we are a nation and as a nation, we have the right to decide by ourselves uh, what kind of political future do we want. That's the right to self-determination. There is also uh, economic argument, but there is also uh, the fact that uh, we have our our own culture, uh, we have our, our own historical background. I mean, Catalonia used to have in the past uh, our own institutions of government. If we we go back into the Middle Ages, Catalonia uh, was something very close to uh, an independent state. So it's also a matter of having an own culture and an own uh, language. Okay, so if some Spaniards, non-Catalan Spaniards Mm -hmm. living in Catalonia after you became independent, if that happened. If they said, right, we want independence, we don't feel comfortable with these Catalan institutions, uh, we don't uh, want to be under oppressive Catalan rule, you will grant them the right to have a referendum and to decide to break away from Catalonia. Would you do that? Well, you know, we have a very, very open definition of what does it mean uh, being Catalan. But it's not for you to say. It's not for you to say. If if some people said, we don't like this Catalonia, we want to be independent, are you going to give them that right? You were talking about uh, Spaniards living in Catalonia. For us, everyone living in, in, in Catalonia, doesn't matter what, where they come from, are Catalans with, with the same rights. So You think that, but they may not agree with you. I mean, you know, lots of Spaniards would say, you're Spanish, you know, you're fine. OK, then they have the right to vote next Sunday and to vote against independence. So you won't give rights to other people that you claim for yourself? But no, that's not, not true. I'm saying everyone will have the right to vote next Sunday and they will have the right to vote whether yes or, or, or no. So if they want to stop... Catalonia being an independent country, they have to go to the polls, to the polling stations and, and vote against independence. That's about democracy. That's how democracy works. You don't see the contradiction in your position that you're, you, no, you no, assert no, your claim to no, independence no. but deny it for others. 
I'm sorry, there is no contradiction at all. I'm saying we were going to vote about that, about this, and we were going to respect the result, whatever the result is. So uh, if the result is no, if those uh, against independence win the vote, we will respect the vote, and then we will keep being part of Spain. But if the yes w wins, uh, the result must be respected as well. So everyone will have the chance to decide and, and to vote uh, next Sunday. And that was Catalan MEP Jordi Soleil, E. Ferrando. And I can see Neil Asherson shaking his head in despair at my line of questioning. So we'll give you a chance to come back on that. But just before we do so, I've got Santiago Fisas who's just joined us, a Spanish member of the European Parliament. And I think you oppose this referendum. Am I right, Santiago Fisas? Yes, uh, I am not only Spanish, I am Catalan too, as Mr. Soleil. On what grounds can you deny this uh, chance to express the views of the Catalan people? because it's uh, totally against the Spanish constitution and it's also totally against uh, the Catalan constitution. The Catalan constitution said that to change this constitution, we need two-thirds of the vote of the Catalan parliament. I didn't got at all this uh, majority. And, of course, it's against the Spanish constitution. That is not a very strange constitution. It's exactly the same that is the Italian, the German, the United States, the French constitution. I mean, it's a normal constitution that says that is, uh, the, the, the power of the people is from the whole of the nation uh, people. Not one part is allowed to separate from the rest of the country. OK, and how far should the Spanish state go in trying to disrupt the referendum? They took the measures necessary to stop the referendum because it's a fake referendum, because it's illegal. And, of course, the Catalan government knows that. As you know very well, uh, the autodetermination recognised by United Nations that is only on three cases, a past colony, a state of war or a lack of very important lack about human rights. That is not the case in Catalonia, of course. Then they, there is not a right for autodetermination for the Catalan people. And that was uh, Santiago Fisas there. Now then, I just wanted to pick up an, uh, on this, James Irving, in that there was the member of the European Parliament representing the, the sort of uh, Spanish, he says he's Catalan, but the Spanish point of view. And he's saying that there's no constitutional right to do this. And I guess he's right, isn't he, that under the Spanish constitution, that, that's what it says. I think there are two separate points here. One is that the Spanish constitution may be clear, but a constitution is a document which is the result of a negotiation between different parties and is a constant. Uh, it's mutable, it's changeable, it's adaptable. And the idea that simply because the Spanish constitution says one thing today that should rule forevermore is not going to be the sort of thing that's likely to win an argument and, in fact, is the sort of thing historically that led one uh, or led groups to seek other means of achieving their ends. I, I thought Mr Fissus's point was, was very interesting in relation to the Catalan constitution requiring a two-thirds vote. There is, for instance, in the Canadian context, it was found under Canadian constitutional law in the Quebec secession reference that a clear majority would be required for any independence vote, which would then lead to a negotiation. I think there's a, a strong argument to say that the sort of 50% plus one, which apparently would be considered enough by the government, the current government in Catalonia, is not an appropriate sort of a margin. It could be transitory. It's certainly not a strong statement to change the political constitution of a group over generations. So if you look at examples like East Timor, where there was a 78.5% vote, or we've just been talking to the Kurds with a over 90% vote, these votes, when they're clear, can be very clear and 
I think he made a very good point that a two-thirds or some kind of supermajority. So his point was one of procedure, process. Is this the appropriate process? And I think there are some, some valid questions. Neil Asherson, I just wanted to... You were shaking your head at, in despair at the thought that a newly independent nation should respect the rights of minorities within its new entity to assert their independence. Why is that uh, not correct? Well, it is correct, and most newly independents do so. Take the case of Scotland. If Scotland were to become independent, what is the biggest minority? The biggest minority is English, which is uh, something like 400,000. The idea that these people would be discriminated against is absolutely absurd, any more than you know the Polish community or the the Bengali community, nothing of the kind would happen. Let's just bring in Elizabeth Ohini now, a Ghanaian politician who has thought about these issues in Africa where there are many, many difficult examples to consider, not least South Sudan, which achieved its independence and yet, I don't know if you'd agree, Elizabeth Ohini, it's widely considered to have been a you know, problematic start to its national life. I think it's fair to say that. How do you reflect on the situation there? Well, after years, after years of uh, almost all of us supporting the South Sudanese uh, struggle, as we saw it, one has been very sorely disappointed. And one wondered whether they were the nation that they thought they were, because the South Sudanese always gave it out that they were these oppressed people and they were the same and they were being oppressed by their Arab uh, uh, neighbors. But now that they finally got what they wanted, they suddenly discover that they aren't one at all. They are breaking up into how many different groupings. And it makes me wonder. I used to hear about the greater Somali, for example, who would say there's part of Kenya that is Somali and they wanted it. And there was Somaliland and then what was Somalia? And you just wonder if they all get together whether those who, the Somalis that had been in Kenya all these years would really have felt any kind of affinity to those who were part of uh, the Italian colony. In Africa, more and more, I'm beginning to feel that those who colonized them, no matter for how long or for how short, appears to have affected the way people feel about who they are than what they were to start with. How else can you explain Eritrea and Ethiopia? So, so you're saying that however sort of illogical the colonial yeah. borders were, people yeah. have begun to sort of think according to those borders? Yeah, look at Cameroon currently. There is agitation going on in what was the British parts of Cameroon. They say they are being dominated by the Francophonie areas. Now, how long was the colonization of both the British or the uh, France? And yet, parts of Cameroon that used to be colonized by the British now say they are different people and they want self-determination. In fact, they want independence. They want to secede. And it's all over the, around the continent. And I'm just wondering how we are defining who we are except that having started from the South Sudan example, I don't think their borders had anything to do with who had colonized them. Right. So maybe that, that, that one doesn't fall into the category of what 
I'm seeing what you're describing. The, the point, yeah. And, and the, the, just just one other important point: the African Union, when it started, as I understand yeah. it, said no changes to borders. I mean, that was the key yes. principle, right? And that's yes. that's being breached. At the formation of the OAU, as it then was, Organization of African Unity, one of the binding principles was that they would obey the colonial borders. This was absurd, if you ask me, because many of these borders made no sense whatsoever. People, you had borders where somebody's kitchen was in one country and the bathroom was in another, all over, all over the continent it was like that. But they, and I thought that at that time, when people were now getting independent, it would have been a little difficult, but it might have been a little easier to have bitten the bullet then and done some, not all of them. They could never have satisfied everybody. But redrawn some of these borders at the time. But they took the view that it was not something they wanted to do. And that is still their position, which has led them into very difficult situations. Uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, it led them into very difficult situations about South Sudan for a long, long time until... They couldn't avoid it anymore. Professor McMillan, just interesting listening to that on South Sudan in particular. It's almost a case of be careful what you wish for. I know. It is It is so difficult. I mean, I, can, I sympathize and understand the grievances of people who feel they haven't been able to be themselves. They, they've been suppressed. But I do think you have to look at what world you want to go into. And South Sudan has fallen to pieces. It has unfriendly neighbors and it is a very, very sad case. I mean, I, I worry about self-determination, which all, so often seems to be wanting full independence, because we seem as a human race to have an infinite capacity to divide ourselves up into little groups. What makes it possible for countries in Europe to contemplate becoming fully independent, nations becoming fully independent, is that they have a stable world around them. Yeah, Neil Asher said, I wondered about that. If if the international order, let's say, is becoming slightly more fragile. I think many people might think it is a little less rule-based than it was. Is that going to be a problem for small nations? It will be tougher for them to survive. No, I don't think so. I think it'll be easier. And I think what's more, it'll lead to proliferation of more small states. I think that's what's going to happen. The whole period since 1989, I mean, after 1989, people thought, ah, now there'll be a kind of single new world order which will be economic liberalism everywhere and uh, democracy slowly will establish itself. And, of course, exactly the opposite happened. Far from great big units, everything began to fragment, and it fragmented under the pressure of globalisation, which has actually, by diminishing the big nation-states and their power, has uh, allowed the escape, if you like to put it that way, of a large number of new states and the whole climate is favourable to proliferation of states. So I'll put the same question to Elizabeth in a moment, but when you hear the argument, which is quite often advanced, it just doesn't make sense to have tiny nations, they can't survive. You know, I've heard that in Kashmir, for example, we're just too small, it'll never work. Do you buy that? No, I don't. I don't at all. I mean, if you look around at the proliferation of small nations, many of them are doing extremely well. And indeed, the tendency of sort of comminution, smaller and smaller states arise and manage to achieve some sort of thing. And what is it leading towards? Eventually, we're going to get city-states in which big cities will break away from, slowly from their territorial embedding and become 
sovereign entities like the, of the, some the kind. movement for an independent London. Yes. Elizabeth O'Heaney, when you hear that kind of suggestion that lots of small countries yeah, are viable, how does that work in the African context? There are small ones that are beginning to... My own Ghana, is, we've had our ups and downs, but we, by and large, making a quite a good fist of it currently. James yeah. Irving wants to well, put something to well, you. No, just one thing I would generally say is that people's frames of reference change over time. In the 19th century, J.S. Mill said that it was self-evident that a country like Belgium was too small to be a, a, right. a state, etc., etc. One of the and, richest um, countries on earth. We've yeah. gone from, yeah, well, well, what about Luxembourg? We've gone from, um, you know, 40 states at the, end, at the founding of the UN to almost 200 now. I think we need to have a little bit of perspective. So, Professor Macmillan, I don't know if I caught you right, but I got the impression you thought that there should be limits to the extent to which small countries declare themselves. But we're hearing a lot of arguments that there's no problem with it. What's your take? I, I don't think we can put limits on the wish of people to declare themselves as independent nations. But what I do caution, it is possible for states such as Estonia and Belgium and Switzerland to survive as independent states, partly because there's a general agreement on the rules among their neighbours that they don't take them over, partly because of the European Union, partly because they exist within a larger economic framework, and quite frankly, partly because of NATO. But I can think of periods in history when you had aggressive states, bigger and more aggressive states, swallowing up their little neighbours. It's very tempting. If you, know, if you were a Prussia in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, you had lots of little neighbours, you tended to move in and swallow them up and nobody could stop you. And so I think it depends very much on what external frameworks are in place for recognising small states And I'm not sure at all times and in all places, and that may be true of the future as well, small states are going to be all that viable in certain areas. Neil Asherson. No, I mean, I agree that, of course, there are contexts in which small states are endangered. The fact is there are going to be more and more of them. It's just going to happen because of the forces of globalisation, the way that nation-state authority is beginning to fall apart. Eventually, all the great compound nation-states are under pressure. Wait till China starts busting up. That's going to be interesting. But I also think that the business of peace and war is important. And partly, if we look at the European Union, I mean, that is a creature of a new kind, in a way. It's a great big sponge. And exactly as Margaret Macmillan was saying, it offers a sort of protection to all these strange little creatures swimming in it, you know, which are sometimes formless, sometimes very unprotected, but rather beautiful, and they can exist in the pores of this enormous spongy creature, which is the European Union. Whether they would survive so well if they were out with it on their own is another question. Yeah, but doesn't that contradict what you said earlier? Because, you know, that's the point, that if there are these rule-based systems, then small nations can exist better, can't they? Well, it is good if there are rules, and rules will emerge. Though one of the rules which I'm always doubtful about, as a matter of fact, is the rule of self the right of self-determination. I'm not sure that it is a right, really, not a positive right. How do you ever decide what it is? I mean, I remember the German expellees who always said it just amounts to our right to go home to the places we were expelled from. Well, this is an important question, and perhaps that was just we've got a few minutes left. We could just discuss that issue, because we started off with the right to self-determination. And James Irving, I know you've studied this. As I understand it, the legal precedent set by Kosovo was important in this respect because it got international jurisdictions saying, yeah, Mm. you've got a right to self-determination, which 
was new. Have I got that wrong? Is that, is, is that what happened in Kosovo? I think that's more political than legal, to be honest. I wouldn't draw too much legally out of, for example, the, the Kosovo uh, case at the, at the ICJ. Um, what I would say is that uh, actually the practical people of politics, diplomats, have been ahead of the lawyers often in this area. They have recognised that there is no point in trying to pretend that there is no way that a group can move towards statehood if it, if it set its mind on that, whereas lawyers have had a great deal of trouble getting their head around it for precisely the reason that's been mentioned before, which is this fragmentation argument, the idea that we might have 5,000 microstates sort of all chirping for global assistance from Mother UN, something like that. And there are real issues there, and I, I accept all of those points. Again, it's a question of balance, and I also think that groups themselves can take some of those issues on their own, you know, they understand those things. So in other words, why is it that Quebec didn't vote in favour of leaving Canada? I would suggest that if there had been a North American equivalent of the EU that made life safe, if you like, or easier for small states, they probably would have voted in favour. But they didn't have that option and they were going to live in a world in which they were next to the United States and it was the United States or the rest of Canada. Mark, Margaret Merlin, you're, you're, you're speaking from Canada. Does that, does that resonate? Yes, I think it does. I mean, that was always the argument that the older Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, made, that a French-speaking Quebec was safer and more secure inside a federal Canada than it would be as an independent state inside a very large English-speaking North America. Now, Elizabeth Ohini, as you hear these arguments and you just reflect on what the African Union said, is it just that the African Union's too weak to be a reassuring body for small groups to look towards to protect them, or how do you see it? Part of it is that... Independence is not too far away from us, but the whole idea of the, the trappings of a state are so attractive to us. And if the country with, within which you are is not thriving economically, then the temptation is very great to say, OK, if we, those of us who speak this different language, can get ourselves together, then we will be better off. And don't forget that in many, many of these countries on this continent, it's very, very rare that you would find that they all speak one language, apart from Somalia, and look what they do. Well, look, as, as we draw this to a close, can I just ask you, all, listening to you all, it just seems that there need to be clearer rules about this because there obviously there are political understandings, there are political realities, there are international rules of a kind, but it's very messy and there's no clarity as to what people's rights are and you know, how people can legitimately advance their, their claims. Is there any prospect of this being clearer in the future, Margaret McMillan? I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I think we'll continue to argue about it because it goes to the heart of, of how we think of ourselves and how we organise ourselves. But I think what we accept is if a nation can successfully declare its independence, maintain that independence is recognized, then it is a nation. So I think we do have some rules, but I don't think it's going to become... It's not, you're not going to be able to go and get a form and say, steps one to five, right. I'm now going to be a nation. Elizabeth Ohini, do you yearn for clarity on this? No, I think it ought to remain a bit romantic. What is it that makes the people think that they are the same? Is it just language or is it just because they they eat the same type of food or they were colonized by the same person or, or what? Sometimes I, I can't define what it is that makes a, a people say we are different, you know, because I'm, I'm, I now have many homes 
in my country or in other parts of, of the continent where people are bringing up their children, not even speaking to them their own mother tongues. They are speaking English to them, to their children. They are speaking French to them. They are speaking Spanish to them because they think that will give them a better way in life. Very soon, maybe we would even lose these our languages. And then what shall we be? Shall we then go to the British and say, okay, my first language is English. Therefore, take me. No, it's not <laughs> going to happen, is it? Neil Asherson. Uh, how do you, you know? Do, do you yearn for rules? I don't really yearn for a code of laws about self-determination and secession because I don't think it would ever work. But what I do yearn for is prudence, learning from lessons. And if you look at cases like Catalonia, for example, a typical case in which the excess nationalist pressure of a larger country has exacerbated, indeed nourished, the nationalism of a smaller country within it. And that's happened in Catalonia. I mean, it would never have gone to this extent if the Madrid government had shown more prudence about handling Catalan wishes for autonomy, and probably if Mrs. Thatcher hadn't dealt in an imperious old British way with Scotland the way she did, independence for Scotland would not have become a credible option, which it now is. Dr. James Irving, you uh, you do lectures on the complexities and nuance of all this, so I guess I guess uh, you have a professional interest in keeping it complicated. I, look, I think obviously I'd I'd love to see a better architecture than the one that we have, and you, that would come as no surprise to hear me say that. But I'd I'd emphasise that that architecture probably isn't one which simply determines you know you're going to get this and the other party is going to get that. It's going to be context dependent, and it's they're going to be procedural rules which help groups to work through a fair process. To to come to an accommodation and unfortunately people don't always think in those terms because they want the law just to give them justice but we have to make justice as a collaborative project. Dr James Irving, thank you very much. Also to Neil Asherson, uh, Elizabeth Ohini and Professor Macmillan. That's it for this edition of the programme. You've been listening to NewsHour Extra. You can comment newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk and you can get the podcast. That's the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. But for now, thanks for listening and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.